Oh, that was chaos. And am I going to get bitten on the bum by something I've forgotten? Very, very probably. But in the meantime, um, I'm going to go back to here. And uh... <laughs> first of all, John. Hello, John. John is here, everyone. Doing. You are right? Nice to be on. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you. A, a long time listener, which is a bit of a weird thing to yeah. say. Cause... I'm, the, I'm the podcast guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, how does it work in audio only for about what are you drinking, by the way? So, I'm uh, uh, going to go for some Belgian beer. Oh, very my... nice. What, what have you got on the go? Uh, but the West... Oh, Westmala, double or triple? Uh, the triple. It, oh. it is nine, it's 9.5%. So, yes. Yeah, the big uh, stuff. We have to finish early, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's about six pints in there. Whereas I'm, I'm, I'm not drinking that. I'm drinking a session, so this is this is juice. Although I'm very much a lightweight these days, so it's probably about the equivalent for me. Um, does everyone have me? Is it all working? Is everyone, uh, everyone joined with us? Uh, here we go. Uh, John Christoph off of the America says uh, that US that they have just as a bit of a you know preceding the news has just said, uh, if you want some good political news, a fair number of transit funding ballot initiatives passed in several U.S. municipalities yesterday. Right. That's good. They always, I always find that part of American politics quite weird, the way that ev- everything is sort of an individual funding, either a ballot initiative or you have to, like, you know, people have to vote for it. It's like railway bills, but on steroids, basically. It's Dulali. It's, it's completely Dulali. Um, okay, so uh, also for the benefit of everyone on the chat, hello to everyone on the chat. Uh, L the developer has set up railnatter.live slash bingo for railnatter bingo, which I don't know what the prizes are, but I went in earlier just for a laugh. This is unofficial. I've had nothing to do with this, but it's pretty funny. So I think I've already, I, I, I looked at it, but I didn't, I made clear not to look at the actual things in any detail. So I didn't spoil it by just working my way through from one end to the other. Anyway, right, let, let's crack on. So uh, John is here. John, I've, I have correct, thankfully set up the guest title for you so you are a policy correspondent for the independent which is nice we'll get onto that in a minute though for starters we have to talk about the news uh starting with this uh so you can see my screen i think can't you john so um uh, this is so i was thinking i was hedging my bets by by this uh headline however uh no no time is actually stopping us from knowing who is in charge so this sort of doesn't apply because no one's in power yet um so, yeah, decrepit old creep grasps levers of power. Well, no, no one's grabbed, grasped the levers of power yet. So, um, obviously, we want rid of Trump, but, yeah. What is it? Unfortunately, is how I've had some people responding to Democrat calls saying, uh, who are you going to vote for? Are you voting for Biden? And the response is, unfortunately. Anyway, no, let's move on. So, no one knows who's in charge of the United States of America at this point, which is nice. Uh, next, the news. Crossrail 2 has got the can. Uh yes. Crossrail two. What have you heard about this, John? Have you have you, have you any thoughts oh, on Crossrail two getting the can? I've basically been off Twitter, which is like my only news source, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm yeah. Go, go on. So basically, as part of um, Sadiq Khan's deal to get funding for public transport off of the government, who ultimately are the ones who own the public transport, as part of this completely contrived battle between London and and. Um, and Westminster, which is basically indicative of, of devolution. Actually, Westminster, the main problem in this country, well, one of the major problems in this country is that Westminster cannot let go of power, um, or rather the Treasury can't let go of power. Uh, and so uh, they like to shout and scream at anyone who actually does have a bit of power, i.e. the Burnhams and the Steve Cans of the world. And so as part of the deal to fund 
uh, not not invest in or you know sustain or support but bail out TFL. Um, Crossrail Two has had to be. Uh, they're not allowed to employ anyone on Crossrail Two, so they've had to sack all of the um, consultants and things. They've all been seconded or or kind of pushed out to other other projects. That just sort of comes across as quite vindictive, really. I mean, it's like saying, "Yeah, you, you can't ask us for this." It seems a bit. Uh... Yeah, pretty much. And um, John Eldridge was saying, "Well, you know, it's, it wasn't going to get built anyway, and all that stuff." But in my head, I've got the fact that it's always like if you do a hard reset like that, even <laughs> if the land's all all sort of protected, it does set things back by like five years. So all the yeah. development work that's gone on now just gets forgotten. All the people who know what the project is supposed to be doing move on, and it, it just sets the project back. Uh, set it up to fail. One of the issues with Crossrail One uh, that's meant that it's taken so long more broadly is the, is is the, is the lack of sort of um, oversight that it's had of a single guiding mind, uh, and that's sort of one of the major issues at the end of it. So starting a project in that way is not necessarily a good plan. So anyway, mixed feelings on that. Uh, hopefully, yeah. the bit between Euston and Kings Cross St Pancras is going to be delivered independently to make HS2 work, because yeah. if Crossrail Two does get canned. It'll make uh, the interchange at uh, Euston a bit more of a pain in the ass. Anyway, there we are. Yeah, it's funny because a few years ago you might have said which of these two projects are going to go forward, HS2 or Crossrail 2, and you think, well, Crossrail 2 is the dead cert because it's London public transport, knows no bounds, and it always gets what it needs, and Crossrail 1's going really well and such a great success. And then it kind of flipped a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, so there we go. So that's that's one item of news. So next, oh, this is a picture of uh, actual Crossrail, by the way. When I first went into the tunnels, it was amazing. And uh, this is, I think, Dodge's round, uh, might be around Silvertown, actually, um, where there's this kind of kink in the alignment, both horizontally and vertically. It's quite it's quite bonkers seeing seeing my kind of day job of alignment design being kind of represented quite manically um, in the tunnels. Uh, maybe someday I'll do a, a rail natter talking about my little trip down inside Crossrail because... That was quite fun. Anyway, that's for the future when I'm really running out of ideas. For now, the next item of the news uh, is a train rides a whale. There is a train and it rode a whale. Uh, this was in the Netherlands, I believe. Yeah. Did you see this? Yeah, yeah, that's incredible stuff. I, I actually <laughs> saw it. I thought maybe it was photoshopped, but... Yeah, yeah. the first yeah. image appeared, someone added me into it, and it was just like it was from t- taken down from in that kind of uh, grass parkland on the other side, and it was just a whale supporting a... Metrocar. I thought it was an installation, which in a way it was. It's just that someone, had, the artist, clearly hadn't finished it and decided to plan a, an additional bit of, you know, uh, an, an addition to his art uh, to their art installation. Um, yeah. Anyway, so this is a bit of a good job. It was there because it would have been a bit of a mess otherwise. Yeah. I mean, this isn't good. Don't drive trains off the end of terminal uh, tracks. It's not a good idea. So I, obviously, there's a bit of an investigation to go on here because. Could have a lot of people could have come to harm, but in the meantime, what we thankfully no one did, and we can just enjoy this mess, uh, like the people in the background of this image are. They're all collected up and looking at this ridiculous suspended metro vehicle on top of the whale of uh, the tail of a whale. How strange, mm-hmm. Rotterdam Metro, there as well. That's a uh, that's a that's a trail for something that'll be coming up later in Ooh. the uh, in nice. the uh, in the stream. Oh, yeah, tease, tease for everyone. Um. Right, yes, the whales are in the news. So, ah, right, okay. So I have to put myself in a prompt slide to remember not to just hammer into the intro without actually introing the intro. So uh, today we're going to be talking about um, Europe. <laughs> Hooray! Actually, there needs to be a bit... Britain needs to be a different colour now because we've left, we've left hashtag Europe, haven't we? Anyway, uh, so we're going to talk about Europe. And, John, it's, it's nice to have you with us. 
Um, so without further ado, because we're already how many minutes? We're already nine minutes in, as is standard. Uh, let's crack on with uh, tonight's rail natter. Lovely Intercity 225 fading away. This is the first time, well, you're, you're sort of seeing it, but you're not getting, I don't think you actually get the audio. So, um, no, I, I know the tune, but that's the first time I've ever seen the visuals because you don't really. see it on the yeah, But yeah. I knew there was an Intercity 225 because you always mention it. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to audio describe the whole intro video. My hope is that, that um, anyway, yeah. So, um, we're starting with a picture of you looking, I was going to say smug, but actually, you kind of look like you're midway through something quite a large that's and complicated great. concept. Uh, what so to John John let's I'll tell you what let's first of all get our faces up up here we've got we've got you back John you're in the corner um hello everyone so uh oh there's all sorts of chat in the chat we'll come back to that but first of all John introduce yourself what, what tell us what 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 you do what's your job uh and why are you on here <laughs> hello yeah so um I my day job is I work for the Independent as a journalist and I'm policy correspondent um, and in the uh, until recently i was europe correspondent based in brussels so uh, a lot of that job involves most traveling around the continent by trains both for work and for fun <laughs> um i managed to get back to the uk just before uh, the pandemic started which uh, i can't i can't tell i can't decide whether it was a good good move or not but um i definitely yeah. miss uh, miss the rails of the continent but uh yeah and i also just quite quite like trains like i think most people on the stream so they're stream d so uh yeah we thought it'd be good to get uh to come on didn't we and just have a have a chat yeah, have, a, have the, a chat we we had a we've we've chatted about rail policy and general policy quite a bit before and we chat about all sorts of things obviously the two of us are the same person uh as identified by a lot of the stop hs2 people <laughs> yeah so um that's a good one um oh yeah so wait a minute we've got other pictures of here you are. this is you working very hard to bring journalistic content to the masses here that's proof that I've been to Europe, yeah. There's some tips and mayo on the right hand side. And on the left, that is that was when I got a sleeper train to Vienna from Brussels, uh, well, via Cologne, to cover a David Davis speech. And uh, I forgot to check the weather, so I sort of, yeah, arrived and got snow. It was actually really good. But... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. So when you went out, okay, we're digressing already. When you went out to, to be Brussels, uh, to a Europe correspondent based in Brussels, what year was that? Was that before or after 2016? It was 2017. So wow. it was quite a reactive thing. It was basically after the referendum, we realised that we needed to have a full-time person there because there was going to be a lot of uh, lot of news. So, yeah, popped out there. And I I mostly covered, like, Brexit talks and European Union uh, shenanigans and stuff like that. But I also did manage to get a bit of um, sort of wider, wider Europe news in, managed to to get around a bit, which I quite like. It was it was nice to have when there was sort of a lull in the Brexit stuff. You could, uh, you know, uh, catch a train to Rotterdam or something and go and look at the port or mm. like things like that. It was yeah, it was good actually. It's uh, yeah. I mean, you, uh, when we chat, it's clear that you have an interest and an eye for for policy detail, which is useful in um, you know in your line of work. I dare say it was kind of a baptism of fire. Suddenly being bombarded with like relentless clauses and. And sort of, you know, pages worth of sort of discussions and debates and 
uh, EU documentation and and the the European the the EP the EC and the EU have a tremendous volume of like bureaucracy like there there is a tremendous volume of written stuff in my day job I have to negotiate a, 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 a not unreasonable chunk of it um and uh yeah so um yeah <laughs> that's probably an interesting 2017 through through 2019 right yeah it's huge and also the fact that it's based, the fact that the um the European Union institutions are based in Belgium I think if there's one thing if there's one sort of institution that trumps the bureaucracy of the European Union it's definitely the Belgian state which into <laughs> just an art form it's, it's brilliant <laughs> You have to, uh, when you arrive, you have to register as a register in your house, and a police officer has to come and come around and check that you're there in person. And someone actually had to come around twice because I wasn't there. A uh, police officer came around twice. Really? Um, which is, yeah, because I, cause I, I think it was my HR department took so long to get the right form from HMRC or something, so they had to double check that I was still there because I hadn't got it. Like, it's, yeah, and, and actually, actually, I did. Uh, I, I managed to get to, to Brussels for uh, for work about two or three weeks ago. Um, I, I just got out of self isolation, and upon leaving the country, I was told that I am uh, apparently a person to be by the border guard that I'm a person to be searched for. I need to report to the town hall uh, because I forgot to deregister when I moved out of the country. So, yeah. So <laughs> already you're. Breaking, yeah, you're demolishing and breaking down the uh, the systems of, of of government in in Belgium in your <laughs> uh, in your yeah, escape yeah. back to the UK. Dear me. So we are going to talk about. Uh, well, first of all, we're going to talk about Belgium, but more broadly, Europe. So you've got this perspective, this unique perspective on um, kind of Europe's railways, having had a chance to sort of skip around on them a bit. Massively jealous of the of your various train trips. And you've kind of, and so we were, when we were chatting about the excuse to get you onto Rail Natter, it was kind of, we came upon the idea of like a perspective of what, what Europe does do particularly well on a kind of a major country by country basis, which I thought was quite, it's quite interesting. So, so yeah, we're going to do just that. And you talk about Belgium, which is where we're going to start. So, um, so tell us, yeah. Okay. While we've got the Belgian flag up there, I'm actually going to bring you up next to me because let's go through a bit of a chat while we're here. So before we kick off properly. Let's see what people are saying. So, um, yeah, only the driver was on board. And it was shunting into sidings out of the services. Al Storer, thanks, good. Yep. Um, uh, yes, lots of puns on the, the news. Um, uh, John Christoph is asking if there's now an opportunity to reevaluate the roof Crossrail 2, or is that still just, is it just delayed? The, the route is pretty much safeguarded, I think. I think there was a little bit of discussion about the, the kind of the, the, the end of it, but for the most part, I think it's, it's, uh, uh, safeguarded has it been safeguarded since it was the hackney chelsea line because because yeah. this is not the first time that this particular project's gone in the bin to be pulled out of the bin like 10 years later is it Chel so a, there's an interesting bit of and, and um actually everyone's favorite railway writer uh mr walmart covers this in his in his book on crossrail um it is actually a good book i would recommend it popular stuff is is what christian is very good at contemporary stuff anyway um uh, and he talked about the fact Chelsea Hackney actually is the was always the line with the better business case and the better sort of broader case for implementation, followed by what is now Crossrail One, and then followed by a third thing which was serving East London, uh, which which uh, ended up being the JLE, um, and um, and the only reason that one got through is because of the third party funding, which it ended up not being able to make any 
use of because somehow Canary Wharf Group have much better lawyers than government and didn't basically didn't have to pay a penny of it. Um, but uh, then Crossrail obviously also has some. They they figured that Crossrail would make sense because it would have some third party funding as well. So that was the order was almost flipped in that Crossrail should have happened. Kind of basically the, the Crossrail two should happen first and didn't because actually it serves lots of populations that would really benefit from it rather than serving sort of smaller populations of business people who benefit from it still, but aren't as numerous um, and maybe don't vote, vote quite right. But anyway, that's another story. So um, yeah, that's, that's, that's Chelsea Hackney there. Oh, there's lots of chat going on in the chat. Lovely stuff. Um, welcome some new faces. Paul, hello. Where, 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 where's he go? Paul, pre- yeah. First time you've ever seen a rail accident get points for artistic merit. That's Paul Prentice. Hello, Paul. Um, anyway, right. People shout at me for, do, for going into the chat and bouncing around like I've got ADD. Most because I probably do. Um, so let's press on with the episode. So Belgium. What are you going to tell us about Belgium then? Tell, tell us a little bit of an overview of Belgium's railway, Belgium, the Belgian railway system, and then we'll go into your slide. Yeah, so so by way of overview for the whole theme, actually, I think it's worth saying. So I think if you... Obviously, we're going to go through bit countries and think, you know, what do they do right, what can we learn from them, and and I think it's in the popular imagination, maybe sort of on your average passenger or punter, they might, you know, there's a, I think there's a general perception in Britain that the railways on the continent are incredible. There's nothing wrong with them, and they're like really cheap and all high speed, and it's brilliant, and nothing goes wrong on the railways in the UK. Crap, and obviously that's not that's actually not true. And anyone who's ever Traveled extensively in Europe will, will tell you there's good and bad things that they do well, well and bad. And equally, if you speak to a lot, maybe speak to a lot of people, or some people who work in the rail industry, you might uh, you might have some people tell you that oh, if you ever suggest anything, you might get told oh, this can't be done. This, this is the best of all possible railways. And equally, that's you know there's some truth to it. Just they're sort of reacting against uh, sort of a popular ignorance, but also maybe some people go a bit too far. So I guess what what we what we would do here is we don't. Yeah, when we point out, oh, this is good, we're not saying, oh, this is perfect and everything's hunky-dory, but there is stuff we can learn. And actually, maybe if we have time at the end as well, we can talk about stuff that the UK does well as well. Um, and like what other countries could potentially learn. Like there is some there is some stuff I reckon we could both mm. think of. Um, so yeah, on Belgium. Um, so Belgium, I thought we should do it first because it's sort of where I, uh, where I lived and it's where I've got the most experience with uh like with the uh, with the rail system, used it loads. Um, it's I think it's fantastic, really, really good. Mm. Um, I, I, what I say about Belgium is it's kind of the so you have to think, you have to know about Belgian politics to kind of get. What, oh, there we go. Yeah, I was going to uh, zoom in on the map while we're while we're chatting actually, because it's yeah. um yeah to so give you, a bit, an idea of what the mainline rail network through Belgium looks like. Yeah. The, the, so the background to, to the Bel- to Belgium is that basically its politics are deadlocked over this language issue of Flemish and French. I won't go into it too much, but essentially, normal politics has been suspended in Belgium essentially for since like the 1970s or even before oh, really? that. And they don't really have they they haven't had the same debates that a lot of other countries have. So as a result, a lot of the post-war settlement is still in place economically. Ah. And also stuff like that. So as a result of that, in railway terms, SNCB, which is the national or NMBS um, in Dutch, the National Railway Company of Belgium is pretty much uh, is probably about as unreformed a uh, a sort of British Rail old school style railway company. 
there's essentially, apart from on the high speed lines for international services, there's essentially zero competition. I think this year they just re reawarded franchise for all intercity services uh, just to SNCB, just direct like you know a very long time. Then, uh, despite being sort of the physical home of the fourth rail package, it's really not the. Uh, it's uh, not the embodiment of that particular package of legislation. Okay, I absolutely love to. Um, well, yeah, SNCB does well, and to be honest, um, it's great. Like, if you don't mind spending loads of money on subsidies, SNCB is actually pretty good. Um, it's, I, I think, so the standout thing that it does is that it is insanely cheap. Like, really. <laughs> um, oh, it's so probably I mean, worth skipping. Yeah, so it's probably worth then skipping up here and going this to yeah. explain some of that yeah yeah so it's i mean this is so it's the first thing you say is this is all sub this is all based on just a huge subsidy i'm, I'm pretty sure sncb has the highest subsidy in europe for any railway company so it, it, it's all paid through taxes taxes in belgium are very high but it's not all to fund sncb it's to fund all the other things that belgium spends money on um as someone who does railways i think it's fantastic so yeah i mean on the left there you've got a Good example. So, so, so basically, the headline fares are very cheap generally. Um, they're, they're done like on a kilometre tariff, um, and then on the weekends everything's half price for a return. So it works out very cheap. I think the most expensive ticket on the network is something like thirty quid, or it's something. <laughs> in, it, it, it is worth remembering that Belgium is the size of Southeast England, so it's not like you're going from like Glasgow to Cornwall or whatever. Yeah. It's like you're going from like Kent to Hertfordshire. That, but it. But like that's still pretty good, mm. and then once you factor in the disc, the discount there, it's pretty good. But the other thing is that there, it's but it's not just the headline price of the tickets that makes it cheap. So they're they're actually just pretty, pretty keen on just kind of throwing free journeys at people. Um, so like you might have seen a news story recently about um, yeah. one of the ways that the Belgian government decided to uh, try and get economic activity moving after lockdown, uh, the first lockdown was that they gave everyone a carnet of 12 tickets just for free um that's the sort of thing that they're quite happy to do but i mean if you look at the um the visual aids there that senior ticket um basically if you're over 65 every rail journey return rail journey is seven euros 20 um <laughs> literally every rail journey and you don't need to get a card or anything like that um i i actually rocked up there with my dad who it, who I'd say is sceptical of publicly owned railways and <laughs> semi-frog-marched him to the, to the booth and made him buy this uh, £7.20 ticket and he couldn't say a word against it because it was very cheap. Um, you, you don't, he, and he'd never been, well, he had been to Belgium before, but he didn't live there. He wasn't a resident. He just was over 65 and was able to purchase this ticket um, with an ID. So that's all, that's already like, Pensions getting very cheap rides. You can go, you can go from one end of the country to the other. You can basically go from very near Lille to like very near Luxembourg for for seven euros twenty. <laughs> but um, there were just there were so many exceptions in there. So one that is relevant is this other one on the right, which I'm a journalist. You're a kind of a journalist as well, like you're a writer. It's, I don't have a card, so I don't know if it counts. But yeah, I think it does. Yeah. So actually, the, the, yeah. So I actually think this is despite this being great and me loving it, it is totally indefensible. But essentially, journalists get free travel on all the trains. Just all of them. <laughs> there's no real... There's no, I, think it, I think if you were to try and explain it to people, you might say, oh, it's, it increases the transparency of the country if we allow journalists close. But really... It's just, that. Sounds good. Yeah, it's just a perk. 
I've, I've actually got my card here uh, as a visual aid. It's oh wait, a minute, um, let me go big. Here it is. Yeah. Don't scan it, anyone. Wait. Yeah, don't. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, it's uh, yeah. I don't think it actually matters because I don't because there's so many layers of bureaucracy to actually getting one of these cards. I, well, actually, I I didn't actually get one for a year or two because the trains are so cheap. Um, so I was like, well, yeah. is there any point getting free free train travel? It's it's so inexpensive on the weekend. It's like. I think between Brussels and Antwerp on the weekend, it's like something like, like five quid return or something mad like that. That's like between the two two biggest cities. Um, so it's so it's insanely cheap. What, what does that? I mean, okay. On the one hand, that's because it's got decent subsidy. But on the other hand, does that? Do you recognise that as driving modal shift? Because if they've got the capacity to do it, that's a sensible idea, right? So so I this is the thing. I actually don't think it does drive modal shift. Really um, interesting. I think in in Belgium it hasn't, and I think in the UK it probably it. Well, actually, if you look at the situation in the UK, pausing it for the pandemic, it was, I mean, the trains, everybody thinks the trains are very expensive in the UK and they didn't really, um, and but yet they were still absolutely full and growing year, year on year. I mean, um, you could argue whether they actually are particularly expensive for like advanced tickets and things like that. But the popular perception that the trains are a rip off in the UK didn't really stop people from like crowding to get in them every day. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah shouldn't make change cheap i think that and maybe there's a happy medium between like free travel for journalists and, and and also if i could point out one thing on the free travel for journalists which i've always found quite a funny detail it's it is free travel for journalists only in second class but if you want to go first class you can go but it's a 75 percent discount which just seems like gratuitously uh gratuitously extra to me but um <laughs> yeah it's very very odd but um yeah that, so that's the domestic trains basically Bel- belgian trains are like a kind of they're, they're sort of a public service in a way as well. They're because the the country's so split between the Dutch and the French side. They're they're, they're very. It's like one of the um, one of the national institutions that really holds the country together. Like it's the federal railways, and it's um, they're kind of uh, it's like along with the king and the football team. It's one of the few things that Wallonians and um, and the and the Flemish actually share because it's a very very separate country. Um, and it's uh, it's it's like a sort of a prestige thing. I mean, the the staff on it and the staff on British railways are often very impressive as well. But like the staff on the Belgian railways, they all speak minimum three languages. They all everyone who works there has to speak French, Dutch, and most of them speak like perfect English. And then there's also uh, you hear them chatting away in German as well. Um, yeah, it's it's all very very impressively done. Um, I, I do think it is great. I think. Um, but one thing about having this sort of unreformed national rail company is it, it takes a lot of initiatives. It's just like if we still had railway managers in charge of specking and running the railways instead of the DFT, sort of specking franchises and then franchise having to hit KPIs and stuff. So you get like a really nice thing. So just little nice things. So I don't, you probably don't know, there's a, there's a coast tram that runs along the north coast of Belgium. Hmm. And this is operated by the local transport authority. But so that people can use the coast tram, if you buy a return ticket to any um, any station on the coast, it's actually a return ticket from any station on the coast. So you can go to one, you can get a return ticket to one station on the coast, get the coast tram along, and then come back. And it actually says in the conditions of carriage of the of the return ticket. Um, you can come. You can come back from another station, and that's that's a deliberate tweak so you can use the coast tram. And it's the sort of integration of thought. It's like someone's yeah. just put the thought into it. It's quite nice. Hmm. 
you don't really get that so much on the British railways. But the um, uh, I would say the, the other the thing that I think really stands out about it is that the so so this isn't something that is unique to Belgium, but it's something that I really it's the main thing I noticed living there compared to the UK, which was the app is very good and you can just buy a ticket for every train on the app and get a barcode ticket and it doesn't matter because there's no you can just like the train line's very good in the UK I, I find for having most different uh, most tickets are available but if it crosses an operator they usually won't sell you a barcode ticket you have to yeah. pick it up at the station and that's just a sort of really simple thing that a sort of a having a you know a, a body that actually looks after the railways run by railway managers i think actually achieves um definitely yeah it's just something it's that that, that overview that that overview is something that the railway the the the, the, the gb railway has always lacked um, which yeah. which kind of brings to a good question by jared johnson actually um Jared, forgive me, I'm going to paraphrase you, but he's sort of talking about the fourth rail package and asking if if the UK is the only place that basically applies, like basically applies it with any rigor. We've chatted briefly about this um, in the past, but what are your thoughts on fourth rail package? I mean, other than the fact that it's sort of representing a snapshot of successful British railway or ostensibly successful British railway policy from about 10 years ago, and it's taken that long to work its way into law. Yeah, it is. It is actually. I think you. I think you put it in an earlier episode. Actually, I think you said about they're a little bit behind the times. There, it does feel like they're a bit late to the party because the EU legislative process takes so long that ten years ago everyone thought, "Oh, franchising—that's brilliant," and then it worked its way through, and they finally got it into law. So, on the question specifically, it's not that it's applied with any rigor. So, the, there's been several rail packages, and they've hence the fourth and they've liberalized they've all liberalized in their own special way the fourth one which requires tendering for all public service contracts so basically anything that's not an open access operator pretty much um or uh or a sort of intercity service they um that um that actually has a time limit built into it so it comes in I think it's 2026 is the oh right okay is for the market yeah so it's passed to what so this is why it's even more of a um, more of a sort of time bomb delay because it's they sort of got it got it got it passed and then um, they said yeah in 2026 we're all going to be liberalising our markets and then everyone decided that actually maybe that's not necessarily the best way to go I think I think a lot of people would probably say and I think this might be my view as well that it changes quite a lot that having open access operators in a lot of situations is actually pretty good they they work all right like there's a lot where of you've good... got capacity yeah where there's system capacity they work yeah yeah and also where they're not um, with the protections that are in place so you're not what they call it revenue abstraction so they're yeah. not just like it, particularly if you've got a state railway company, revenue abstraction is just take, it's just like taking money off taxpayers and putting it in, into banks, uh, into the banks of the the company that's competing in a loss leader. But but actually, false competition for for con, for franchises and public service obligations that doesn't seem to have really worked or delivered any particular benefits that anybody. It's can, one of those weird things where. Like an entire policy. Oh, by the way, I've noticed that you're to everyone in the in the feed. Sorry that I'm, I know that there's a bit of a cutout on John's sound when I talk loudly. John cuts off. Hopefully, it's not causing too many problems for you. Tell me in the chat if it is, and I'll I'll shut up more often. But um, yeah, it's kind of one of those situations where rail policy has been developed by people who don't know the difference between correlation and causation. Like the whole thing is based on looking at Britain's railway system and going, 
yeah, that's done wonders, hasn't it? And not knowing just the absolute basic rule that everyone tweets about every in every fifth tweet is saying correlation, not causation. But that's what's happened, isn't it, basically? like Yeah, I mean, there's. I think you might have brought this up before as well, and it's something that I've been pointing out for years, which is about the Northern Ireland Railways in that respect, which yeah. is that the Northern Irish Railways have essentially had passenger growth that are basically the same as the GB Railways, and they've also remained nationalised the whole time. So, you you know, we can't say exactly what factors are driving increase in rail passenger, but it doesn't seem to be structural change in the railway industry since the 1990s. I mean, there might be a, an independent factor, but it definitely, you know. Yeah, uh, there's a bigger fish out there. The, the world is bigger than, than how the railways are run. The socioeconomic factors are the things that impact on how many people travel by train and, and broader policy. Anyway, we're good grief. You know, it's th- we've got 33 minutes of episode and we've only done one country, John, and there are more countries in Europe. This is fun and fine and good and healthy, but it does mean that when you listen to this, listeners, hello listeners who can't see me waving, um, they're, 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 anyway, I don't know, how, how does a two-hour podcast work down the street? How did the TDNS episode work in uh, the, the traction decarbonisation strategy? How did that work in audio-only form, John? I think that one was... So that one was difficult because that was you going through the document, wasn't it? So, yeah, but I, but most of the others actually work really well in audio, I find. Um, I generally just sort of imagine what the Intercity 225 looks like at the beginning and then, yeah. Well, now, you see, now you see in the intro, that's it. It's, your imagination yeah. doesn't have to work. I've recorded it, so it's good. Yeah. So, um, right, that's back to small faces. Deutschland, we're in Germany. Tell us about Germany's railway. Get a quick, broad overview and then, um, and then we'll get into your slides again. So tell us about Germany. Good. Okay. So Germany, um, <laughs> everyone's favorite sort of point to, uh, uh, you know, it's basically Deutsche Bahn, you love it or you hate it, um, has big problems with reliability, but there's a lot we could learn from the German railway system in particular, um, which I think we're going to get into specifically. Hmm. Um, what's actually, what, what is the next slide that we've got coming up? Oh there, yeah, uh, it is. The next slide is S-Bahn. Um, oh. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is a great little map. It's courtesy of Wikimedia. And it's basically a, a really beautiful little map of all the S-Bahn systems in, um, in Germany. And uh, it makes me extremely jealous uh, because I feel we could have uh, decent regional rail networks like this uh, run by local operators in the UK. In a lot of metropolitan areas i mean germany is particularly decentralized it has a lot of cities but there are um there are it's actually one thing i quite like about this map is if you look at the name the names of the systems a lot of them make you know a lot of them are things you would recognize like berlin or hamburg hanover uh, maybe even rhine main or uh but there's, they actually have uh, similar problems with coming up with names and stuff that we do. So there's one called Mitteldeutschland, yeah. which is like middle middle Germany. And yeah, in, in the UK, we notoriously refuse to refer to areas as X, Y, Z, city region. And we're stuck with what we can call stuff. So, But yeah, they, apparently they have that too. So that's reassuring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting because I've created a map. It was in draft and, and I kind of got distracted for reasons. I created a map like this of potential S-Bahn systems or S-Train, if you want to un-Germanify it, um, yeah. in, in the UK. Um, and this is it's one of the things that HS2 can, can allow us to do by segregating services, but also yeah. combined with the devolution that I talked about in a previous episode as well, is that you enable some of these systems. And the whole point of S-Bahn is that it's uh, it's red dedicated regional and, and kind of urban and suburban railway 
operated by the city region or the the urban region and very much then therefore designed to work for the people that it serves rather than by being controlled by central government who don't really know what what areas need and also high frequencies you know in in the 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 frequencies outside of london in the uk are just just dismal you know even birmingham manchester and we're going to come to those i think in a minute have such poor frequencies compared to um you know thameslink for example yeah yeah the um so yeah you mentioned high speed segregation as a as a way of enabling that with hs2 and that's that's that look that's a big one and then the other one is building um well they what they would call S-Bahn central tunnels, but we would probably call, I guess, crossrails. So like yeah. cr- a crossrail for Manchester, a crossrail for uh, for, um, uh, b- uh, Birmingham. For and, Birmingham, yeah, which I think... Oh, actually, no, which we'll, we'll come to in a minute because I think there are a couple of other slides of nice things that you're going to tell us about. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, there are a few systems like that under sort of... Sort of I say under construction sort of in the UK, they tend to be extremely low hanging fruit. Like I think the Metro West proposal around, around Bristol, it's not really a proposal. It's actually going, but that, that sort of basically involves opening, reopening the Porter's headline, doesn't it? And Mm. then there's you sort of minor tweaks, but any, any actual sort of expenditure on, on this stuff, you could very quickly probably get up to quite a decent thing. A lot of this stuff, was done kind of in the, uh, the 60s, the 70s, the the 80s, etc. But we'll get on to the the other stuff, the other stuff later. But yeah, I, um, and also you talk you talk about what you would call it in the UK, um, S train. I mean, you could you could go with overground as well, like the London mm. overground space is sort of an Spanish. I mean, it's the same. It's the same from a passenger point of view. It's the same sort of idea, although operationally it's a bit different. But it's um, you could you know you could have like a Manchester overground or etc. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, and, it, and that would be maybe a brand people recognise. But yeah, should we go on to the next slide? Yeah, let's do it, because it's pictures of the inside of trains, people. So I'm going to audio describe. So on the left-hand side, we've got a very snazzy... Actually, I do recognise that. as Having been in an IC3, uh, I think it was an IC3, I do kind of recognise that glass finish. It's like a, it's like an office interior, some of the kind of the business section. Deliberately so, I'd imagine. Um, and it looks pretty snazzy. In the middle, you've got um, same sort of thing. You've got a kind of a compartment, I think, then opening out into an open uh, coach. And then the third, you've just got just a nice-looking dining car, I think. But tell us about these pictures. So that's, that's what I can see. So, so I thought this – so without wanting to dwell too much on Germany, I thought this was worth doing. So um, Deutsche Bahn, you're probably most familiar with it if you've ever got a train in Germany with its um, Intercity Express, the ICE trains, the sort of nice sort of – bright white ones with very modern interiors and i think actually they're responsible for one of for the perception of german trains being like you know yeah. particularly good in the uk because you're just wowed by the you go in and the, the interior decoration and design and the comfort and the the level of um sort of detail that's been put into making them a nice place to be inside is is extraordinary these are this isn't I think the typical experience of a British person stepping out of Frankfurt Airport and getting on an ICE is sitting down in second class and asking the person next to them, like, excuse me, is this first class? Because it does yeah. feel first class. It's it's lovely. And that is, I don't want to sing the praises of the ICE too much. Deutsche Bahn's intercity punctuality is astonishingly bad. Mm. Um, but I think it, uh, I don't, you must know uh, writer Owen Haverley, who who, write, who travels around by Europe by train quite a lot. Yeah, he, he likes and he drive, has to get. He goes to Poland quite a bit to the, to east. That involves going across Germany, 
and he's endlessly frustrated with the punctuality of Deutsche Bahn, but he put it pretty well, I thought, once when he said, it actually doesn't really matter that much because the trains are just really nice, so yeah. you can spend time on them, and it's just, like, really pleasant, um, which I think is worth doing. And, you know, there have been some valiant efforts to... I say valiant, no. There have been some minor efforts to occasionally... No, hey, I'll start again. There, there have been, there's been a lot of new rolling stock in the UK recently, and I think one of the reasons that I've been very disappointed with a lot of it whenever I've seen it, because I'm always like, oh, new train, let's get a Class 802 or something. That'd be great. That'd be really fun. We're looking forward to it. And you sit down on the GWR Class 802 and it's like grey plastic bat seat yep. back. Like a lot of people complain about the feel of the seats themselves. I actually didn't really get that. But just how like very bright lighting, like home-based green handles like on the side of each seat for no reason that aren't even like a GWR corporate colour. And, like, people will fling around all sorts of excuses as, oh, the DFT spectre, or, oh, this is actually the best we can do, or, oh, it needs to be... It's just rubbish. Like, just make the trains look nice inside. It'll cost, like, about a fraction of the actual over... You spend an extra, you know, you spend an extra grand per passenger, you know, per seat in the train on interior, and that gets paid for after four journeys in a long-distance train, you know? Yeah. People... like passengers really, really notice this stuff, and it completely changes the perception of the service. Yeah. Now, you wouldn't necessarily be able to replicate everything cost-free. Like a lot of what makes the ICE nice is that it has probably fewer seats. So, would you you need to consider? Would you need to, you know? That's like an it is an eternal challenge in the UK is that everything yeah. gets sacrificed for seating capacity. It's true. And of course, like yeah, things like you know things that I would like if somebody likes to ride my bike around. I love like a bicycle coach. That might not 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 necessarily be something you could do. The, the ICE four, the new germ, the new German one, that has a lot of bicycle spaces. But then you go, well, are they always going to be used, mm-hmm. or like are you taking out space that could be used for passengers at rush hour? Are people going to take too kindly to being crammed in? And of course, the dining car that takes up a lot of space. You could get more tri- seats for paying passengers and stuff. But like you could just. You wouldn't have to even chase the layout of the train. You could just make it look nice, you know. Use a bit of glass, use a bit of MDF. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's um, just it is. It really is the case that like it, it it has a business feel to it. Whereas, yeah, everything feels so plastic and like even work. the intercity trains. And I, don't get me wrong, I love the Azumas, I love the LNR Azumas, but even the interior of those feels it does like it's a modern train, but it still feels quite cold and it doesn't feel as welcoming a space as the. Uh, there's the old 225 interior um you know the old mallard interiors yeah and this isn't just unique to germany like you can go into uh i don't think we're going to really talk too much about i know we'll talk about austria a bit later but the rail trains they have like leather effect seats that are very nice and it people notice that that sort of stuff and it's it's quite pleasant i think mm. yes yeah, should we do the next slide but I think, had, yeah. good god time is already oh there's a picture of some delicious food Oh yeah, this this is the same this is the same sort of thing. So it's it's really just um this is a like typical offering in a dining car in Germany. And like just, just offering the beer in a pint glass just makes it nice. Yeah. Might be, <laughs> um and like yeah, being able to get curry verse and like a sort of a pretzel. That's that's actually not even the most impressive arrangement of um a food you can get in there by a by a mile. It's in a cardboard box. But but you can see it does have a China plate and proper cutlery underneath. It does. I am just re- I've just realized that I've not had German currywurst in absolutely donkey's years and all of a sudden realized how much I miss it. Oh my god. 
Yeah, I've been uh, what, when I'm when I'm inside the UK, I'm a vegetarian, but I uh, I sometimes uh, <laughs> when I'm abroad, I uh, I branch out. And yeah, I've uh, I've actually been making it at home with those Linda McCartney sausages they always do. It's, it's actually pretty pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, and and the food can be pretty good on 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 some UK, but it's it's just it's the whole package. It's and it's also the inconsistency of it is that like most passengers don't give a stuff about whether they're on a uh, a van to you or a, they're just on a long distance train and they associate bad across the board. So they just, you know, basic thing that there need to be minimum standards across all. Of the, funnily enough, all the in-city trains in the UK ought to be run by the same organisation because then you'd have some level of consistency. That, anyway. That's another point I wanted to make, actually, because, yeah, I, I essentially before I moved and started taking drugs on the continent, I never, ever purchased food on trains because you're just trained not to do it because you, you like, if you mostly travel for leisure, like you go to the buffet, the buffet counter or whatever, it's like, oh, yeah, it's closed, or, oh, we've only got, like, a ham sandwich. Or ham something. sandwich and maybe a hot, the, maybe the hot food yeah. you get is a toasty. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and, like, there's a great... I mean, one thing the UK does well is it has a very good offering of food. I mean, Germany does this as well, but it has a very good offering of sort of sandwich outlets and food stuff at stations, so I always just stock up before I go. But, yeah. you know, this is a missed trick. It's actually... It's actually quite a nice way to while away a journey to have like a proper pint of beer and stuff. I mean, we, maybe we should have got the old picture. There's an old British Rail Tavern card. Don't you, have you ever seen that picture? Oh, yeah. yeah, Tim shares it a lot. Uh, yeah. yeah. Go, Tim. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I think it's just what you said about um, consistency is important because, yeah, you know what you're going to get when you get on an in-city train in Germany. Um, you don't know, what, unless you're a nerd. And to be honest, I wouldn't even be able to remember like, what the, diff- what the different configurations are. And I spend too much time thinking about trains. But yeah, I think yeah. people would probably just have absolutely no idea. It's a complete jackpot. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that, having that sense of a national network is another thing that that it's sort of tied in, a national city network It's tied into this like consistent offer that you get on trains in Germany that, that yeah, that's one thing that I think the UK could definitely learn. A consistent offer across an intercity network, definitely. Yep, yep. So, uh, we are now going to skip over to look at a picture of Manchester. <laughs> yes. And the reason for that is, well, talk us through the reason. While, while you talk through the reason, I'm going to go and open Rail Map and I'm going to zoom into Manchester. Here we are, Manchester. Yeah, so Manchester is... Um, so, I, so, to rewind slightly, I, I managed to get, take a little holiday in August. I managed to get out of the country and go to Munich, um, which I very much enjoyed. And while I was... Not, not Munich, sorry, um, Hamburg. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, I was going to say, which slide was the yeah. Munich one? Yeah, okay, Hamburg. <laughs> uh, sorry, I went to Munich the year before. Um, while I was in Hamburg, I um, I got, I, I had to fly because you couldn't get a, a surface train out without quarantining. But um, I, I took a regional train out to Lübeck, but I spent a lot of time in, in Hamburg itself and uh, used the S-Bahn to get around a lot. And... Um, uh, had a little look at the and was very impressed. It's a really great service, like a very a great sort of cent, uh, you know. It's these for anyone who doesn't know what an S bahn is. It's basically full size regional trains, um, sort of coming out of the city. Um, we, sh- we showed a map of them earlier, uh, and then sort of all converging through a central tunnel in the middle, um, kind of like an overground. But then yeah, very high frequency in the city centre itself. Yeah, um, Thameslink is one. And, it, and it's yeah exactly and it's and uh, to an extent Crossrail one is but Crossrail two very much would have been wouldn't it yeah. it, takes, it has a lot of branches yeah it, yeah yeah now we can say it would have had a lot of branches yeah. um, sad but, 
better to build one in Manchester because, um, yeah, this is a good example. So what I had a little look at the, the, the layout of the stations in Hamburg, and it's actually remarkable. Um, Hamburg has a very, very similar uh, rail system. Yeah, this is it. has a very, very similar rail system to um, Manchester, except it made a different decision in the 60s and 70s to build what um, readers and listeners might be familiar with as the Pickwick Tunnel. Pickwick. So, yeah. So yeah, in the in the uh, in the sixties and seventies, there was this proposal to build a tunnel between Manchester's two terminal stations, uh, Victoria Station and Piccadilly Station, um, and it never happened. Instead, they built a Metrolink. And, and um, oh, actually, uh, could you could you switch open rail map to infrastructure rather than max speeds? On oh, yeah. I think it shows it a bit better. Yeah. Oh yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You can see you can see Piccadilly. Um, down the bottom there, and then up at the top, on the other side of the Metrolink, there is um, Victoria. Victoria. Yeah. Until very recently, there wasn't really a connection between those two. Um, there is now the Ortsal Cord, is it, or Ortsal Curve? Yeah, uh, there's to... the Ortsal Cord uh, here. That's that's right. Yeah. So there is a very small connection between these two stations, but um, you'll probably be able to explain it better than I am. But it's essentially congested with mixed traffic. I think it's a the horrible way. mixture of, of of conflicting moves across complex flat junctions signaling sections that are a bit doolally and not very compliant so not very good for efficiency uh lots of just all sorts of moves where trains get in the way of each other rather than just total segregation of the different services they cross over each other they just get in the way of everything oh i'm being told to one of us has got a beer bottle lid noise and it's annoying wait oh, dude, no. thanks david shepherd <laughs> John, John John says sorry. Um, yeah, so so the, so originally Pickwick would have gone from Piccadilly up to Victoria. It would have been a tunnel, um, a good idea. Um, yeah. And if you go back to the Hamburg map, um, they, that is essentially what they built in the light green going between Hamburg Hauptbahnhof and Hamburg Altona. Really, really similar. So that is their Pickwick tunnel. It, it was actually called the City Barn, I think it was. Yeah, there you go. You're highlighting it in red there. Yeah, um, they've actually got their own sort of hotel called there. It's the um, the one on the uh, the top there, uh, running along the through the lake. It actually runs along the old uh, battlements, the old city walls. Ah, so um, so, so here, uh, here. so that in the sixties, that used to carry intercity traffic that needed to go through Hamburg, and ah, also so that's the Castlefield corridor equivalent. Exactly, yeah. So. Yeah. The castle, yeah, so it, was, it had intercity traffic, S-Bahns, only a couple of S-Bahn lines. And they said, well, what should we do? And in, in both these cities, they said, what should we do with our pretty much identical rail layouts? And in Hamburg, they built the Pickwick Tunnel slash City Barn. And there's a, um, we actually saw back in the picture, there's a load. Now all the suburban trains are connected up uh, uh, in this city, and they cross the city using this tunnel. Um, and most, most of them do, and they're all basically now cross rails with brilliant frequency in the middle, uh, great sort of uh, increased utility for passengers in the suburbs. In Manchester, that's not really possible. Um, the, num- the services that are squeezed through the Castlefield Corridor on the Old South Cord are, um, uh, well, they're subject to delays and stuff, and you can't squeeze that many through. Uh, instead, they decide to, I mean, Metrolink is obviously very badly needed, um, but it's not a replacement for a for a sort of a, a cross rail or a pit bit tunnel. It, it isn't. I, yeah, and I think what's amazing about this is if you look at just the distance, uh, you probably can't measure the distance on this, but the distance between Piccadilly and Victoria is not very long. Like it's, they said, this wouldn't be, if you look at London's cross rail, the incredible thing is how 
how much underground tunnel there is, this probably wouldn't actually require very much at all to connect the two stations. So if you included junctions, I think it's about two kilometres of, of, of uh, twin track tunnel. So so four kilometres of total tunnelling, probably, including yeah. junctions. So not oh. not a lot of tunnelling, actually. Yeah, exactly. It's and particularly compared to London, but it would revolutionise the transport network in in Greater Manchester, wouldn't it? So building Pickwick would just like the cross city line in Birmingham, actually, which I think you mentioned in a second. Um, it would absolutely revolution. It would be f- massive for not just Manchester, not just Greater Manchester, but Crewe, Leeds, um, all of the northwest up to Carlisle, uh, you know, but including Preston and all of that side. And then down into Midlands, it would impact that large an area of rail network. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And we use Manchester as an example because I noticed, because the theme is Europe, and I noticed that there was a sort of eerie similarity between the Hamburg uh, rail layout and the Manchester one, um, apart from the sort of parallel universe where they built the tunnel. But um, it's, it's equally true in yeah, Birmingham, where there needs to be a Birmingham Crossrail and I think you said you could probably do one in Leeds as well I'm not sure about Glasgow that might be the other one but um, yeah uh, yeah it's I think that's that's definitely something we could learn it's just like build some central tunnels it's, it's interesting because politically it's difficult to know how to pitch this I think you'd probably say we need crossrails for these cities because people yeah. in other associate Crossrail with like largesse on London yeah like Labour kept calling Northern Powerhouse Rail Crossrail um, for the North and I was like and I actually I was in a meeting in inside government, inside um, Portcullis House with the transport, the shadow transport team. And I was saying, stop calling it Crossrail for the North. It is not a Crossrail for the North. Crossrail is something that, ev- that a lot of cities need right now. Don't confuse your message because you're potentially going to cause yourselves issues in the future. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, so everyone's trying. Yeah, but that, that, the, the reason I say that is because it's clear that Crossrail brand is something that has has sort of stock um, uh, politically. Yeah, totally. And yeah, but then if it's interesting because you could say, oh, well, we need to do that. But people think of Crossrail, they think, oh, that's like a big tube line. But it's much oh, yeah. bigger. It's like, because people go, it's sort of like HS2. It's people go, oh, Bo- yeah, Bozo Blinkenwell called it, uh, Bozo called it the Elizabeth Line, didn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that was ridiculous. I mean, but yeah, if, it's a bit like HS2. Like you, you, you build like a Crossrail for Manchester and people go, oh, well, Crossrail for Manchester, there's like, you know, there's these four or five central stations in the tunnel. It doesn't go anywhere near me. It doesn't benefit me. But the whole point is this enables a Manchester overground or, you know, the Birmingham one enables yes, yeah. Midlands overground or, or S train. Plus more regional transport flow, plus more freight in and out of Trafford Park, plus all this other good stuff. Yeah, and no, it's definitely, it's definitely actually right. I'm going to pull my ranker's chair and say, so... Oh, and, and so you expand. So there's Hamburg, lovely Hamburg. Thank you, me doing slide animation for no reason. So yeah, we got Manchester here doing the same thing. It's, it's kind of making the point you're saying. Um, but then Birmingham as well. Actually, you, you, you raised the point about Birmingham. If we whiz over to Birmingham on on the open rail map, do 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 do. Uh, just do that now. There's Brum. Uh, go down here. What do we see? We see a hugely congested corridor and also you've got the cross city line coming up here and then going off here and this horrible mess here is just a nightmare and it, and and Birmingham new street is horrendously congested there need to be underground platforms broadly parallel in new street for the cross city line for similar exactly. reasons yeah exactly and i think if there's you know if there's one thing that we absolutely could like copy wholesale from germany and they do it in all sorts of other countries as well but um one thing that we could really hold uh, you know i 
I, you can keep the wood interiors and the nice pint glasses. Let's just build some cross-city tunnels. That would be beautiful. We could have great local, regional um, sort of S-bars. That, that's, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, which brings us to Giel. Giel's with us. Giel, hello. The Netherlands. Hooray. Uh, tell us about the Netherlands. So, uh, I mean, the, the Dutch railway system is is pretty nice actually. It's 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 not very flashy, um, but it's it works pretty well. I mean, it's it's a it's sort of a big web of um, intercity. Uh, they have they have like they've they focused instead of they have got some high speed lines, but they're mostly for international services. And they've got um, basically a, a great network of like intercity, uh, sort of like two hundred kilometer an hour, kilometer an hour, one hundred twenty five mile an hour max, but probably a bit less. Uh, services run, um, attempt to run at very high frequency between the major cities and um, works very well but the, the thing I want to highlight particularly about the Netherlands that we could really take from the UK is I think they're probably the best implementation of a nationwide smart card ah, um, yes so chip card um, so it's uh, yeah there's a nice picture of one there it's something that like if British Rail had existed for the last 20 or so years we would definitely have one yeah. like <laughs> Like British Rail would have probably been way ahead. I mean, TFL blazed blaze a trail in getting these done in London. Yeah. Um, the, the way it works in the Netherlands is it's, it's pretty similar to an Oyster. I think it takes a deposit um, when you when you tap in, and then you have to tap out. And if you don't tap out, it takes your deposit. It's basically another way of a penalty fare, but it makes it sound yeah, like yeah. fine, basically. Um, uh, so, I mean... This would be. I wouldn't. I'm not going to say it's trivial to implement because it, it's clear. It's, it was actually pretty difficult. I think there were quite a lot of implementation problems with the chip card. But this is now the only way I believe that you can use the metro. So like the Rotterdam metro that crashed into the whale. Um, you can't pay with cash on them. It's like in London. Um, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but it's also accepted on like literally all public transport in the country. So you can take it on the um, on all on all trains. You just tap in. Um, there's, an, there's been an ITSO standard knocking around the UK for ages, but it seems to have just, I don't even know where it's at it seems to be just for season tickets, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I need to we're going to get um, we're going to get Tom off of uh, off of Real Time Trains on to talk to talk about it um, okay. and, and we need to because I, I, it's, it's a discuss, smart card like why the country doesn't have a smart card yet is just, it's baffling and, it, and it'd be interesting to explore some of those the, the reasoning behind it, but you get all these people talking about going, talking about mass, talking about mobility as a service, and all this bollocks. And it's like, no, no, stop using funny, silly, gizmo names for it. It's just bloody integrated transport. It's just integrated ticketing. Oh so, man. Yeah, I mean, and there is there is an argument that we've sort of missed the boat on smart cards, and what we need to do is just allow contactless payment. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. um, that's, I mean, paying with phones and stuff. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's just. The, maybe that's the way to do it i mean i think for people who didn't have access to a bank card anyway you'd need to um uh you need to be a backup card yeah yeah but you could just do that by offering like uh it could just be literally a uh a bank card that's managed by the yeah yeah exactly managed by the transport authority by let's call it uh rail british or something yeah railways britain <laughs> that is prob- they would probably call it that now, to be honest. Yeah, they're not ever going to call it British Rail, despite that being clearly the best name. I think UK Rail, there are a few registered domains here and there by the government under UK Rail. You didn't hear that from me. 
Uh, so mm-hmm. keep an eye on that. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so the Netherlands. I mean, that's that, what, what else can we say about the Netherlands? That's that's pretty much it, actually. Sorry, Phil. There's not. I mean, you know, that's just a really big, massive thing. But I, I, to be fair, in the Netherlands, a lot of the things we've talked about for the other countries actually apply there too. Yeah, totally. And it's it's one of those doses. I and also we we're not going to dwell on it too much. But Austria is is quite has a sort of a similar sort of railway, and, and to extend parts of the Swiss railway, in that it's not flashy. It just does stuff well. Mm-hmm. Like it just has like pretty nice trains that are like very frequent and not very expensive and they go where you need to go not particularly quickly but like fast enough um yeah it's just a it's just a pretty well-run railway with decent levels of of tech integration i think it's really important to stress this is less the case on trains but for buses i mean smart card and that sort of payment is massively useful and that it just hugely speeds up services i mean you take a bus in london you take a bus somewhere else and you remember you remember oh this is how long it takes people to pay for a fare in cash like it's and it's even the quality of the scanner makes a difference the cards they've got contactless in york which is brilliant but the scanner's naff, so you have to hold it there for almost as long as the transaction takes, which slows it down. It really shows how much it knackers a bus system. Yeah, and I don't know what the situation is now with Manchester, but I remember when they introduced the card, which the name was My Get Me There, which is possibly the worst name that you could come up with, I think. it, it And it, it's, it's, quite, it's difficult to... Chris McKenna has pointed that out, actually. He's already laughing about it. Uh, my Get Me There. Yeah, and there there was some there were like several different ways of approaching the card, and it was very it was just not intuitive and stuff like that. I think it might have worked alright for season tickets or something like that, but it was yeah just just very bad. Um, and like it's yeah, ideally, yeah, maybe maybe it's best to go regional with this stuff. Oyster has been a big success, but then TFL's moving towards contactless cards now. Maybe it's better to have a national one. I don't know, but like step. Whatever we do, it would definitely be better than the current situation, particularly outside London, I think. But yeah, let's move on to the next one. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, there's another Tom who could talk about that. Get Tom Forth on and get him to talk about why why it has or hasn't happened. Um, Die Schweiz, uh, Switzerland. So, uh, I don't know why I decided to put the native and English for this. I just, you know, I like gimmicks. But um, so, Swiss railways. Well, okay, tell us broadly about an overview of the the railways while I get the map up and then, then we'll get the slides up. Yeah, so I mean, uh, maybe you want to, might want to talk a bit about this as well because I think it's something that you, I, I definitely heard you talking about before. But the Swiss railways are basically very similar to what we were. They're sort of the archetype of what what I, what I sort of alluded to with the Dutch is that they're basically like not particularly flashy but very well run. I mean, they're notorious for being extremely punctual, which is done really by huge amounts of padding in the timetable. Yeah, okay, yeah. But like in a, but it it works and the entire system is built on um there are very few direct trains so in the uk we have this model where you know you might get on a train in uh, i don't know uh, newton Ab- newton abbott um in the southwest and you'd expect a direct it's like a relatively smallish medium-sized town yeah expect to get a direct train to london you wouldn't really expect that in switzerland you would be happy to change trains but you'd be happy to do it because the trains are very reliable the the connections are guaranteed they hold connections um and yeah, it's um, and and they and then they also have this. The other thing that stands out is they have this particular approach to um, improving the railways, where they sort of uh, they have like a national plan and they decide what what they what they want to do. So in this in this slide, you can see they have um, highlighted they want to do a five minute saving here, five minute saving here, and an eight minute saving on this line, and um, then they build the infrastructure to make that happen. Um, and that's to to make the basically they they build infrastructure to make the timetable that they've already already decided they want. 
Um, and they essentially want, you know, a, a frequent service, clock face timetable. And so they, they basically build to that, which is a pretty, seems to be a pretty sensible way to run a railway. Um, I, I don't know. Do you, is it, what's, the, what's the German word again? It's like ta- tax plan, tax far plan. Yeah. So yeah. tax plan is like the, the word, the, the shortened word, which covers this. And I think, um, yeah. So, so were your other slides kind of broadly covering that as well? Is it? Yeah. I, I particularly put this one in cause I really like it. It's, uh, that that says in Deutsch in Swiss German it says, "Die Schweiz, uh, Switz- Switzerland wird zur S-Bahn." So uh, Switzerland becomes an S-Bahn. Yeah. Uh, which is I think is a lovely way of putting it. So essentially they've, this these are all the the intercity and regional rail routes in Switzerland, and uh, they all have numbers like line numbers, and uh, the aim is to have extremely. Uh, so this is from the Swiss Rails doc. Uh, uh, Swiss Federal Rail, basically from the Swiss Federal Railways document explaining what they're going to be doing in 2035. Yeah. Um, so they lay this public document out and they say, this is what we're doing and these are the improvements we're taking to make it. And that's just something that we probably should be doing in the UK if we had a, a railway that was run by railway managers, essentially. Like, yeah, it's kind of comes back to my Network 2050 permanent rail engineering thing, which I which is still in the works, but it's changed somewhat thanks to, you know, things um so it needs it needs a bit of an update to respond to various political things but that was kind of my logic is that britain really needs and it's one of my drums that i bang really firmly is that britain needs a plan the main problem with our railways is that there is no plan um and to be honest covid only exaggerates uh, the problems with that because by not having a plan suddenly the railways is has have become a, a fickle kind of plaything again without without kind of seeing beyond the crisis and there are, there are a lot of politicians that we can uh, criticise for that, pretty much anybody who's ever been Transport Secretary. But I think one guy really does uh, not get it enough, not get enough stick for uh, his contribution to that, which is Alistair Darling. Who I, think, I was going to say Darling, yeah. He abolished the Strategic Rail Authority, which was like, I mean, maybe he did us a favour in that he basically made franchising not work. Because you yeah. could have... <laughs> body that basically told the franchise what to do kind of pretended pretending that franchising wasn't happening and that it was actually been direct directed by this body that was planning but yeah um i mean he also did things like cancelled the uh the leeds trams and yeah. cancelled south hans trams yeah not not a fantastic transport secretary i would say no i think I was... he's probably one of the worst trans arguably the worst transport secretary since um since marples you know it's yeah. like pretty bad um, and 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 at least Marples had the excuse that he was only really doing what the general public wanted at the time, actually, which I know will be controversial to a lot of people in the chat. But actually, Marples was basically just doing what everyone else around him was telling him to do, whereas Darling was somewhat going against the zeitgeist. Um, in any case, so and then the third one, you've got this. This sort of again comes out of the uh, what was that? The Ban Angebot was that? Was yeah. The... So this was, I think, uh, I picked this out a few weeks ago, so I kind of forgot what it is. But I think this is, oh yeah, this is just one example of from this same document. So it's basically explaining that the changes they're going to be making and the services you'll be you'll get to run in the area. And it's this is all a public document that explains the plan, like it's yeah, same sort of thing. Um, and every now and then you see a glimpse of things, like the old network rail route utilization strategies did a little bit of this. But no, most people don't know about them, so they're not a particularly democratized document. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, it's just frustrating. And and then the lack of joined up thinking with the operators uh, is is yeah. So yeah, that's a lot we can learn from Swiss Railways actually a lot. Um, so where are we going next? We're going to France, France or yeah. France. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, so France, French, the French railways. Uh, quite a lot that doesn't work about the French railways, but actually plenty that very much does still. And I, I suppose I need to zoom out quite a bit for to make this point, right? Cause yeah, totally. There we are. I mean, I think the thing there is they've, like, yeah, everyone knows that there's issues with SNCF and, like, it's uh, it's not fantastic and in a lot of ways. But one thing that does does show well is that they've consistently over a long period invested in uh in high speed segregation which yeah although they've actually done it in a way that we probably wouldn't want to do because they don't when they build high speed lines they tend to actually replace into city services and don't um don't they sort of almost mothball the yeah. uh but they have at least built lots of high speed lines yeah. uh, which is something that we should be doing and I think they did it in a particular way. It kind of harks back to the Swiss thing, really. Um, I actually couldn't find the document annoyingly, but there was—I think there was some sort of. Um, otherwise, it would be great to have it on here, but it's obviously in French, so it's hard to track it down. If you, <laughs> but they—they uh, they had a. Uh, they, I think it was in like the seventies or eighties. They basically drew a map of the high-speed lines they wanted and went, "Yeah, this is what it'll look like when we're done." And they're still not done because, like, yeah, they have political problems like everybody else and planning disputes and funding funding becomes an issue for particular lines but you know if you look to this document you'll know for instance that there's supposed to be a line that goes um uh like there are basically proposals for, for all sorts of lines on it and that there's an idea of what the network will, the high-speed network will look like when it's finished which is really something that you could we could benefit i think if if we took that approach with hs2 yeah. because hs2 is kind of gone in the middle like it's neither a piecemeal approach it is a mega project but it's such a mega project that people think that this is the only thing that's going to get built, yeah. and it doesn't help me. They say well, it probably does, but like it doesn't maybe go to where they where they live or like things like that. So um, yeah, you get people saying, "Oh, why doesn't it go to Scotland?" And anybody who's like deep in rail policy probably knows that yeah, there's actually a a government commitment to get uh, sub three hour journey times between London and the Scottish Central Belt. But there's no map you could point to of how that will be achieved. Yeah, um, exactly. Like, where a theoretical rail corridor would be, and yeah, that's just that's something. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, it would be nice to have a finished finished idea of what exactly we'd like a high speed rail network to look like and explain the benefits. And yeah, I think that's yeah, that's it'd some... be, yeah, well, absolutely. And it's just that, that, that it's that frustration that, that, that the lack of strategy, the lack of, lack of strategic approach, really. And it's actually interesting to compare Germany and France. I, I find on this something that I don't think Germany does very well is have good international connections across. Actually, Germany is a, gi- a giant blocker for getting up to, for example, Sweden. Um, yeah, and also go because it, because it's so central. You you need to get there to get to like Poland and stuff like that. But the uh, Poland. But the West East connections are pretty slow. They are, I think, they are going to be rectifying that. There's like a this plans to build a line between, I think, like uh, 300 kilometers now, a line between like uh, Wolfsburg and uh, probably somewhere to the west of that, like towards the Rhine Ruhr. But that's currently a very slow section. If you've ever got the train to Berlin, you're like, yeah, exactly that bit. Yeah. Um, oh, that no one can see that actually. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah. I can't draw. I can't draw a line because I'm not on there. <laughs> in any case, broadly, Wolfsburg is now in the middle of the screen. Dusseldorf and Ruhr, uh, is now is is now in the middle of the screen, and that kind of a connection across there, across Germany. So yeah, that that core 
is just so I've done a city travel across Germany and it's it is in terms of speed of connection and in terms of connectivity it's a bit rubbish whereas France whenever you're going through past France the connection interconnections are fantastic and and I think that's one thing that that France really has in its favor is that it it's when you want to go down to Spain France doesn't get in the way in the same way that Germany does completely yeah I mean I've, I've often thought particularly LGVS like the the east the east one out to Strasbourg incredibly when I was in when I lived in Brussels you often have uh, you and basically everyone and their dog has to go to Strasbourg a lot because the parliament has this yeah. thing where it moves between Brussels and Strasbourg once a month. Um, it's something in the EU treaties. They have to move it around. It's pretty ridiculous. But the fastest way to get there by a long shot is to go via Paris, which is yeah. significantly west of both cities. Yeah, um, yeah you're going to change. And you don't actually have sometimes so it depends on the exact time you go i have in the past gone to paris Gare du nord like the north station which is the one that connects to to brussels and then done the short walk to garest garest which is like a very uh which is almost like going from like euston to king's cross or something like that it's a doable walk if you know what you're doing um and then you can get the train out but you can also change that um uh charles de gaulle airport and uh the high speed station yeah Mar la Vallée, which is Disneyland, um, <laughs> is a great place. To, it is. So it's a station built for interchange, which which sounds great, except it's also the station for Disneyland, which means that there are a lot of like children with massive suitcases on the platforms constantly, which is uh, annoying for getting around the station. But in theory, it's very good, apart from the fact that Disneyland's located there. Um, but yeah, you can uh, you can make, and there are direct TGVs to Strasbourg as well. You can see there's a curve there. Um, people have yeah, people have asked me. John Walton has uh, asked me to zoom in uh, on it. I think that was John. Yeah, zoom in on the interconnection est to your est. Yeah, they they timetable a few of them, and they, the Ooh. the parliament actually charters a TGV, um, which is apparently great fun to be on. Um, you can sort of book onto it. I think they email all the MVP assistants ahead, and they book onto it. And the bar on that train is supposed to be very fun. I've actually <laughs> always gone. Yeah, I've never got a charter train. I've always gone under my own steam and got the just a regular one because it's it was usually, it's usually quite last minute that I decide to actually go to Strasbourg. Um, but um, yeah, it's uh, uh, it's it's no problem at all, and it's much faster than going get. Although maybe not quite as fun as getting the sort of old IC train. Through down through Luxembourg and changing in Luxembourg. That's a very nice, um, comfortable but very slow journey through the Ardennes. But yeah, it's it's it's, they're both fun journeys. But yeah, that's that's a great thing you can do. And it's interesting that actually France is one of the few countries to build this bypass because um, everyone always goes on about how centralised and obsessed with Paris France is. But uh, maybe maybe that's actually what required them to build a bypass because all the lines do actually go to Paris, to yeah. be fair. I was going to say, that is, there, there is indeed the bypass you can see on screen now. Uh, the whole thing yeah, running around, quite what, impressive. Um, what you don't want to learn from France is being, I mean, we sort of do it anyway, but being too centralised. So one particular oddity of the French ground network, the TGV network is, I think it's going from um, Lyon, to Bordeaux, yeah, it's Lyon to Bordeaux. Um, if you look there, so yeah, those are the sort of near the yeah, so bottom left of that le- that Atlantic TGV line, and halfway down the Mediterranean TGV line. Though, yeah, <laughs> this connection here, there isn't one. <laughs> There's a believe are the second and third largest cities in France is again to go by Paris, which is a little bit of a mess, but. Um, 
yeah, you, I think that there are intercity trains, I think, direct between them, um, but they are not very fast, and it is faster to get the TGV. And I, and I think just as the same price, because TGV is, like, if particularly book in advance, is not, not very... Not particularly not, expensive, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, right, my mic's gone a bit uh, wonky there, so... Um, yeah, so there we go. That was that was our map of the of the intercity connections. So yeah. then the next, which which takes us actually to the uh, the highest resolution free map that I could get off the internet. It happened weirdly to be for us, did I? Um, yeah, we're in Austria. Uh, so what's so great about the Austrian railway system? Well, it's very similar to the Swiss railways. Over the, the general day trains are very similar to the Swiss railways in that they are just well run. The stations are particularly nice. I think in Austria, I think they're they're really love, really clean, exceptionally nice. They always have like a uh, a nice waiting room for just all passengers. It's like it's sort of like you you feel like you've rocked up in the first class lounge, but you're actually in the waiting room. Um, yeah, they're just very nice. But the thing that actually that I wanted to talk about that I think stands out about them is how great their um, international sleepers are. Like ÖBB, the, um, the the Austrian Federal Railways, the Österreich Bundesbahn, is like leading the charge with this reintroduction of sleepers to the extent that people are actually, you know, the the Swedes are talking about getting uh, OBB in. I think they the OBB took, overtook the uh, all the old Deutsche Bahn night trains and yeah. they weren't running a profit and seems to run them at a profit which like i'm always very dubious because you can do anything with accounting really when, yeah. when people but at the same time also there's not really a reason for them to to run these things if they're not making a profit because it's not like they're actually making a public service a lot of these aren't actually a public service obligation for for austrian passengers i mean a lot of the a lot of their services don't only sort of connect quite tangentially to Austria. Um, yeah, yeah, but it's quite it's just it is a bit of a no brainer for travel. I mean, we had you know we had the the sleeper train episode um, a while back, which is really good fun, and we heard about this the process yeah. developing. Yeah, so um, yeah, so so you've got a picture of a couchette here, I think. Yes. So um, the this is I think. So I'm not a railway manager. I haven't seen where the. Uh, I haven't seen how the money stacks up on these things, but I actually think that this here is actually probably one of the secrets to the Austrian, the maybe they call it the night jet success. Mm. So um, if you've, I, I'm sure a lot of people in the chat have taken a, a sleeper train in the UK. I've actually never done so. Um, that's because I've never really travelled overnight for business in the UK on one of these routes, um, and I don't. And like for for leisure, the price point is too high for me. And also, I don't really fancy sitting in a chair overnight because in the UK you have two options on the sleepers. You can either go full on sleeper with like a shower room, or in your own private room, or you can sit in a seat all night, which yeah is affordable but not really that great. Um, Continental sleepers, particularly for night jet, have this middle option that they call a couchette, um, and it's basically like a. I mean, it's this. It's a. Um, it's sort of a hard-ish bed. Um, it's it's a sleeping surface for you to sleep on. You can either go in. It's basically a bunk. Um, you can either yeah. go in a, a four-person or a six-person carriage. They're actually the same. Sorry, compartments. They're actually the same compartments. You can see there that they've got the two beds pushed together, so that can actually one of those actually can move down and becomes a six-person. Um, oh. I would, yeah. So, but that that's in the four-person configuration. Hmm. Um, 
I, I would always say go for the four person unless you're absolutely skinned because it's only about 10 quid more. Um, the prices are very reasonable considering they're supposedly making a profit on them. Um, I actually, I've, I've taken them for leisure a few times. I got, um, I took Salzburg to Rome, which is fantastic, I thought. And um, that one actually runs from Munich to Rome. So it's not even like from Austria to anywhere else. It just happens to go to Austria. Um, and it's a great way to travel. Um, and for work, I did it a few times. They, they recently extended it to Brussels a few times a week. But the um, you've been able to get a, get an ICE or a Talis to Cologne and then take the Cologne to uh, Vienna sleep. And I did that to go to a speech by David Davis that was announced at the last minute and even booked relatively last minute. It was pretty cheap. I think it was like under 100 euros for the ticket return. Um, which, considering your like distance is like two UKs or something like that, it's like not expensive. Yeah, yeah. There's a few people saying that they haven't taken sleeper trains in the UK because they can't afford them, and also there aren't that many. So, yeah, um, so, so, so I, I, I've, I pointed this out to um, I, I was tweeting about this, and Mark, and Mark Smith, who's a great advocate of train travel in the UK, and who I respect immensely. I think he's done a fantastic job with C sixty one. I think he's a great guy. Um, but one thing I, he, he was quick to point out that actually the sleeper prices for the full cabin on the Austrian sleeper trains are very similar to the sleeper prices on UK trains. But I think what he missed there is that the couchette is, you know, it doesn't it's exist. Like, yeah. It's about, yeah, it's about 40 to 50 quid each way. And he, um, we would, I think we both agree that sitting in a seat overnight isn't great, but you do get a nice sleep on this. Like, you know, there, because it's a shared cabin, occasionally people come in and out and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm not going to say uh, it's like a five-star hotel, but, I mean, if you like the look of that sort of thing, it's pretty good. I mean, it's, it, if you're thinking about flying, it's what you get in – like, it's probably better than what you get in first class on a plane, like Emirates or something like that, long haul. Mm. Um, yeah, Ned, Ned Carlson has asked an interesting question. Sorry, I've been missing a lot of the chat. There's lots going on. But Ned's asked a question, which is, does any service globally have something equivalent to airline lie flat seating? Um, it feels like a hugely better intermediate option than anything most railways do. I don't know the answer to that, actually. Yeah, I would say I don't know that for sure. I, I'd say Couchette is pretty similar. I, I think there might be something in China. I think they because their sleeper yeah. trains are pretty big in China. Um, mm. They they have like very similar Couchette style stuff in China. I think I, I've not taken a sleeper train there myself. I've taken a high speed Chinese train, which I found very impressive. But the um, they tend to have uh, I think they have almost like saloon Couchette compartments on a lot of Chinese trains with like a curtain. Uh, I I don't think we've got a picture of one of those, but yeah, the, uh, the the sort of the flat wise stuff is that these these are essentially lie flat. I think one issue with doing it in terms of spacing on a train with airline style lying flat seating is that stuff. You tend to get that in first class, don't you? And yeah. it's great, particularly efficient use of space because you have to have the leg room anyway during the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lying flat, and then you you may as well just have it a permanent bed. Um, yeah, so exactly. One thing about these couchette couchette things is actually. During the day, and I don't think they actually do this because I've always I always see the the night jets sitting in the station overnight for a long time. Sorry, during, during the day until they're ready to go, but they actually do convert into um, benches, uh, yeah, day cars, yeah, benches. So it's like a compartment. So imagine the, the that double seat at the top, kind of lifting back and then around. And then it all twists around into two two like compartment benches facing each other, and then you can put that ladder kind of folds away, and it becomes a compartment car. Mm. Which yeah, uh, so that's I know that one economic problem with sleepers is that the the rolling stock is basically sitting around during the day and uh, and doesn't 
not making money. So that's one reason that they tend to be very expensive. But maybe another way we could do it is by, you know, massively increasing demand for sleepers by, yeah. <laughs> by filling Yeah, by improving the service. For example, um, Paul Prentice just pointed out that, and I totally agree, and, and this is for me even in Europe, like the, well, the one thing we're probably missing in the UK sleeper-wise is a Scotland to the north, to the Midlands, to the southwest sleeper. It'd be very useful. So essentially skipping London. Totally yeah, agree, I'm, Paul, because like, for me, the reason I can't get the train, like I would love to get up to Scotland more often using a sleeper, but I have to get the train over to Preston to catch it or down to yeah. London. Yeah, and I don't want to do down the UK sleepers too much because although I've not taken them, I mean, they, they would, if you look at a map of sleeper routes in the UK, like, uh, sorry, in the whole of Europe, a lot of them have been cut and Austria is one success story, but another is that the UK ones still exist. So mm. just because I haven't been able to take any doesn't mean it doesn't mean yeah. that no one's taking them. And clearly they're a popular option. And it, there's some there's a sort of the new high, the new um Mark V like Highland sleeper. I, I know it had a lot of, I, maybe it still does have a lot of technical teething problems, but the um the uh it looks very nice in the pictures. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a whiskey car looks very nice. So. Yeah, I've yet to afford to go on it, but I will at some point, I'm sure. Kentish Railways points out they can't do lie-down seats on the Cal Sleeper due to the reversal. Um, going head first uh, potentially causes neck injuries in an accident. So there's a sensible enough reason for that. Um, yeah, so couchettes are a good thing, and we should should uh, nick those. Um, oh, which which we pop over to España, to Spain. Uh, oh, go on, tell us about Spain's railways, and what's good about them. Yeah, Spain has historically had quite i think what you probably regard as quite a poor poor railway system but um they're a bit of a dark horse in the high speed yeah we, let's get that let's get that map up they have yeah. if you ask someone in the uk and i think this is because public perception on basically every issue about what's going on abroad is usually about 10 to 20 years behind <laughs> like that's that would be the same for us on a lot of stuff that we're not we don't follow religiously and it's basically if you ask people what what country has the most high speed line in europe they might they'll probably say oh well france because the tgv that's after the bullet train yeah that's that's the one we always think of and maybe people more clued up have been to germany might say oh yeah the ICE, yeah those nice shiny white trains germany's got a lot of high speed line but they actually don't have that much the answer is actually spain mm. they've got loads of high speed line going on there and they it's, built it very quickly very quickly and to faster speeds than everybody else as well like you can see that slightly pinkish color indicates that they're actually running at like 320 to 360 uh yeah what's what this speeds that? go on load 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 two two not th 350 that's a 350 there we yeah, are. nearly as fast so if anyone ever says oh yeah no one's building that to that speed when they look at hs2 that's that's pretty much the speed hs2 is going to be operationally isn't yep. it 360 yeah yeah it'll run most of the time 330 but it's been built to 360 if you go to the Basque Country in the north and zoom in, I think it will sh start showing you lines oh, that are Basque, under. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, uh, yeah, right in the middle where you were before. Um, then sort of zoom in closer. Yeah, exactly there, and uh, it will show you if you zoom in a bit more. One more time. Yeah, that's the. I think that's the Basque Y. So they're building. Um, ah. Yeah, that's that's still under construction, but but basically, yeah, they're building absolutely tons of high speed line, often through like extremely mountainous terrain. Oh yeah, um, it's all dashed. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and these and the lightly pink shaded areas through tunnel. Um, it's incredible. But, well, this is what this is what the, this is what Northern Powerhouse Rail ought to emulate. Basically, is yeah. that you'll have this sort of connection like this. Yeah, so that one's a bit slow. That was like 140 or something, but it connects to an extremely. If you go sort of south, follow that line southwest. And then it will connect up to, oh, maybe not there, but yeah, somewhere. 
Um, but but yeah, it's they, they built a lot of high speed line there, and it's a nice nicely run railway there. But one thing that I so I actually don't know if this is even a thing that Spain is renowned for doing particularly well, but it was something that I noticed while I was there that I just thought was fantastic was the interchange between different modes. So between rail, particularly between rail and long distance buses. So yeah, this is this is the picture that I thought was worth doing. So yeah. Long distance buses in Spain are really good. Like I don't really like taking them in the UK that much because um, I tend to associate going to Victoria Coach Station, which <laughs> can be quite unpleasant. But the um, just early in the morning, bleary eyed, come smells of pasties. But like, um, yeah. But t- taking buses in Spain, they're all air conditioned. They're like lovely. They're quite quick. Um, and the thing that really they do really well is they have like a centralized bus station in basically every town and they do this in a lot of eastern europe as well i I, like and it tends to be right next to the railway station so it's not really a thing it's not really a problem i don't know if if barcelona does but i know that should we go down to madrid yeah yeah i i think uh seville i remember uh maybe it was like yeah malaga certainly has um and a bunch of got similar ones a lot of the ones in andalusia i'm not sure if i can even find it on the map and you know it might not even be something that all the spanish all the spanish cities do well but the ones i went to certainly did it well um and i've to be fair i've mostly been around andalusia on the spanish trains and and buses but they the i was very impressed by the sort of interchange between long distance buses and stuff like that and i feel like um that's something we could just do better in the uk there are some cities that have bus stations they tend to be things that like uh northern cities with a lot of civic uh, sort of medium-sized northern cities with civic pride would build like preston bus station things like that Um, but there's not you know if you go to say london and this particular map of king's cross you might wonder what's this what is this it's a map of all the bus routes that come out of king's cross and if you look at it closely you'll see that these I mean, it's quite difficult to read and quite difficult to work out where your bus is going. But I mean, King's Cross was read as, King's Cross and St Pancras were both the entire area was basically entirely redeveloped. Um, and there's no bus, no bus facilities whatsoever. There's like let's count them: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. There's about like fifteen plus different bus stops on various different streets. It, unless you're using something like City Mapper, it's or you know where you're going, it's pretty impossible to work out where you need to get your bus from. Really, like, there's plenty, you should, there should really just be a bus station between the two, or, like, near the two, where every bus that goes, that stops at King's Cross, or King's Cross St Pancras, goes to, and if you need to get on a bus, you can do it. Um, a lot of people, do, like, a, bus, a lot of people do use buses, and a lot of people need to use buses. If you look at the transport recovery figures from COVID, buses are up to, like, I think uh, there were one stage it was something between like fifty and seventy percent. Yeah, yeah, right? and, and and hugely in the re- like more in the regions as well, actually. Yeah, and and but and, and whereas rails capped out at about forty, unfortunately, I don't think I don't think that's permanent. I think you're on the same page as, on that as well. But like buses are extremely important, and they're like really useful for getting around a lot, a lot of places because you can't put as much as I'd love us to. You can't put railway lines everywhere, so you might as well make. Um, yeah, so uh, Shio Maybug says in the chat, underneath the square but above the tube. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of great places you could put one, and if you just had one spot where you could, I'm using King's Cross as an example, but yeah, general good interchange with buses from railway stations is something that certainly worked well in some of the Spanish cities I went to, and I'm sort of using that as a maybe an idealized vision of what I'd, of what I'd want to have. <laughs> Yeah, but it's something. It's it's a particular thing that you notice. I mean, I suppose if they entirely um, closed off Euston Road to motor traffic other than buses, they could do something fancy with islands there. 
Yeah, Thomas Wood points out I like Houston. And yeah, I think Houston's actually a really good example of where it's done pretty well. And also yeah. a really good reason why Houston is a well-designed railway station and the people who hate on it are actually wrong because it's a great station. Um, Absolutely. It is. Well, it makes sense. Uh, I, I had this I had this argument with John Elledge and I kind of bounced between... I, I bounced between loving and... Well, I've never hated Houston. I always think it's brilliant. I think it's a, been abused as a vision. And it's also massively under capacity. But... Um, yeah, like certainly the bus interchange is good. Um, John Veach, uh, apologies for, for hating on uh, gauge gauge changing trains. We'll get you on for a, for a rail matter on that one. Um, but John is pointing out that that you know that you need to have in connecting high speed stations with local services, and when you buy a ticket for a high speed service, you get to travel in the town city just included by default. So like, Absolutely. what is it, bus? Plus plus bus, which I've never bought, but no. should just be in the ticket because why just, not? Yeah, exactly. Just include that in the ticket. When I went to Hamburg um, this summer, I my hotel came with a free metro ticket for the whole, just a free travel card for the entire state. Which was, it wasn't like a really expensive hotel. I think it was just an initiative of the city. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's one of the reasons I use the S Bahn so much. So yeah, I mean, I'm not saying do that, but yeah, why not include bus? Absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, so right, which which means I think you know, yeah, that that that's sort of let's bring your face back. So do you want, I, I haven't been telling you the time, but we've been recording now for an hour and thirty two. So it's it's a, it's a longer episode, folks. <laughs> it was inevitable. It was always going to be. Um, John, that's been really good. I've enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. That was great. Good, good, good to chat and rant. Yeah, yeah. They always end up being a chat and a rant. Uh, everyone, you've been brilliant in the chat. There's lots of discussions going on. I don't know how good the. The, the 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 bingo has has been for everyone. I don't know who's scoring highest on that. I don't know to what extent this has been a particularly unprofessional episode with me diving around with all the uh, like uh, flicking between tabs and all sorts. But actually, we've resulted in many things appearing on screen as visual aids, which is hopefully useful for for viewers, if not for the audio listeners. Um, I mean, we've not we've barely scratched the surface. Actually, the discussion. I think the only thing that we were going to touch on is things that... So I wanted to put in... what We've got one thing each we get to say that I think Britain's railways do particularly well uniquely. And I'm going to name one, and hopefully it's not the same one that you might come up with. My one is passenger engagement. Is that Twitter... Oh. Twitter is something that, I th- for example, that I think the GB Rail Network does better than any other, in my experience. They might have changed now, because I've not travelled in Europe by rail for a while now. Um, but certainly when I was travelling by rail like britain was leaps and bounds ahead in terms of providing rapid passenger information interesting i I think information can be difficult to come by in i mean it varies by country and one thing that i've heard people um europeans say to me uh is that they've always they've been impressed by the number of staff on station uh uh able to talk to i i think that'll again probably vary by um I think but it's quite counterintuitive, isn't it? Because you'd think that a state railway would sort of have a lot of um, a lot of stuff knocking about. Mm. Apparently, that's something that the UK does quite well. Um, I would say this is this is both a good thing and a bad thing. But I think overall, like the UK does an incredible job of squeezing both capacity and like yeah. services out of uh, out of classic lines. Like, yeah, we should we've done that because we've kind of fucked up and not built enough. Yeah, we just haven't built anything. Yeah. yeah, we haven't built anything for ages. We haven't built any city cross rails. We haven't built any like high speed segregation, really. But um, like you know, um, one example that I was thinking about recently was the the East Coast Main Line is um, is basically a high speed railway. And that if you look at the um, the 
passed the travel time on the Talis from Brussels to Amsterdam, which is like a classic European high-speed rail route, mm. although it does actually run on classic lines between Brussels and Antwerp. It, um, the travel time on that is at one hour, 50 minutes, but it's actually rough. It's about the same distance as the crow flies bet- as between King's Cross and Grantham, which is one hour, 10 minutes. So, so yeah. it's on the line, LMER is running a much, much overall quicker service. Um, and yeah, and capacity is obviously fantastic. They do a great job there. Um, and if I could sneak one more in, I actually think, uh, I know it's the same thing. It's basically frequency on a lot of mm. times. Like city frequency can be very good. And particularly for a lot of rural stations, like one, one train an hour is like, unless a line has been neglected, you'll often get one train an hour. But I mean, there are, there are, sta- there are stations in Belgium where it's like one train every two hours. Um, I mean, that that's the same in the UK, mm. I suppose. Maybe I'm too southeast focused for that. I was gonna say, yeah, boo, southeast, yeah, yeah, yeah good services, good, good state, like some of the services that my favorite examples are the ones. In, I, I mean, you're right. I, I don't have to dispute that. You are right. And actually, there are several places around in, in rural parts of of the UK uh, of GB, not just uh, in the southeast that have good rural services. But I always laugh. My my one my my counteract to that is that is the the um, the Arcadis office in Warrington is in a stupid place anyway. It's a big classic British kind of uh, commercial estate with zero public transport connectivity there's a station that's a 20 minute walk away um and it has a train basically every two hours and to get there even though it's it's, it's kind of in near warrington to get there you have to change at oxford road in manchester it's just a disaster um yeah. so they, yeah blessing and a curse and it's kind of the, both the things you talked about frequency combined with journey times is the ultimate challenge it's something that britain does pretty well all things considered but it's reached breaking point now where we can't do either better. If I could have one more thing as well that I think you could do as well is, um, and this is a legacy of British Rail, is through ticketing. is just like, yeah. it's like basically the perfect through ticketing system. And I think a lot of countries will look at it and go, oh, kind of wish we had that. But then it does come with other problems like not having leg-based ticketing and yeah. the sort of anomalies that create split, uh, fare splitting and things like that. So... Yeah, it's yeah. an incredibly. We have probably the most. Uh, it's like um, Mark Mark Smith says, like Britain's railways are both the cheapest and most expensive in Europe, in that we have an incredibly commercially competitive ticketing system. But it's also as a system itself. The reason that that works is because it's unbelievably complicated, way over complicated, in fact. Um, but anyway, yeah. So so yeah. So so yeah. There are there. So. Well, this has been great because it's done what I hope, which is that the world is not simple and, 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 and easy. It's complicated and there are goods and bads and grey areas. And actually, Europe's railways aren't perfect, but there are lots of things we can learn from them. Uh, just like mainland Europe ha- has lots of things that, that probably they can pick up from us. And it's, um, yeah, the picture is never as simple as people will try and have you believe. Um, everyone in the chat, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, right, go on then. I'm gonna, I've got to pre- I'll go through my ads. So uh let's yeah so we've got uh the podcasting it appears on all good pl- podcasting platforms as you all know um we have uh oh yeah the patreon stuff there's so much going on in the patreon uh sorry in the discord sorry the discord gareth.co.uk slash discord so much going on in the discord i have no idea um if you want to choose future episodes and guests uh support me on patreon and then also if you don't want to do any of that but you just fancy throwing me loose change then paypal's the place to go but the Discord is bonkers. I did not realize the Discord would, would escalate as quickly as it has, in honesty. Next week, 
We have a Rail Natter first, which is a new format. It's a new format, which I'm trialing and have not actually set up at all yet, other than making the background green, not orange, for the title card, which is that we're going to have a scenic rail... T- it's, it's a new format called Scenic Rail Tours of an Hour in Length, which is where we broadly try and map an actual railway journey onto a Rail Natter, um, and that limits how far we can do. It means that it leaves lots of nice bits of railway line to do. The first one we're going to do is Inverurie to Elgin, which is my old stomping ground, actually. I used to do that a lot when I was a kid with my bicycle. Um, and so uh, it's a chance for me to reminisce, but also for us to talk about rural railways and for me to trial this format with a, a section of railway that perhaps isn't as commonly requested. So that, yes. Um, so that should be fun. That's next week. Uh, it will be live. John, you're back. Um, thanks so much for joining us. That should be yeah. Green people are shocked by the fact there's going to be a green rail natter. No, that was great fun. Thanks very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Um, we've we've demolished the time. It's one hour forty this episode as of just now. Uh, thanks everyone for sticking with us. Um, it's no, it's the, the it's it's been brilliant. The chat's been brilliant. Everyone, thanks everyone. John, a pleasure. <laughs> it's- Oh dear, it's chaos. I've enjoyed my beer. We'll see you all next week. Cheerio. Thanks, John. Bye.